0: Well, good morning, everybody. Are you okay with me not having a mask up here? I won't preach too loud and spread the stuff way out, you know. But it's nice to see real people that every once in a while, a little spinning wheel doesn't appear in front of your face because of my poor internet connection and things like that. And uh, you're real people. I I know that. I can tell right now. (laughs) That's great. It's wonderful to be with you. I pray for you folks often, uh, for Pastor Nathaniel and his family, and for you folks. I, I just love you folks to pieces. And uh, I've been trying to keep in connection with my family, uh, my daughter and family in, in Chilai. Uh, I see them quite regularly. My grandson there is going to be starting at RIT this fall, so I'm pretty proud of him and my family in Canada I have not seen since February because I can't cross the border and so we visit on Zoom and that's where we see the little spinning wheel on the screen you know and uh, but it's it's been we've been doing okay god has helped us in so many different ways so are you ready to get into his word today give you a heads up we're going to be in the prophet isaiah or if you're from Maine like me it's isaiah And uh, if I slip on the pronunciation, just ignore it. Isaiah, a prophet of God, chosen by God to warn Jerusalem, Judah, that God was going to do something with them that will not be especially good. Because they had just begun to forget about God and to ignore Him or reject Him or whatever. And he predicts exile for the people of God. But then in chapter 40, the tone switches around and we see the other side of the picture. Isaiah turns to a message of hope that the kingdom will be restored... And that a Messiah would come. He would come as a suffering servant. And God would set up a new and righteous kingdom. What Isaiah is saying here is this. That God still has a purpose for His people. And you know what? Even in the midst of these confusing times, He also has a purpose for His people going to talk about it today. Isaiah chapter 41, beginning at verse 17. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. And springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water. And the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia. The myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland. And the fir and the cypress together. So that people may see and know. May consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. In verse 18, you'll notice the reference to a river or rivers. Many great cities have rivers. New York City has the Hudson or the East. New Orleans has the Mississippi. Rochester has the mighty Genesee. I can't remember the river that flows through Springwater. It's something, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Rivers can be a problem. There can be floods. But more often than not, they are a blessing or a benefit with commerce and boats and bridges and bass and catfish and things like that. Rivers going through great cities. But pity, poor Jerusalem. The city of God, the location of the temple, the center of their culture and worship, but there's no river in Jerusalem. Maybe a well, but that's about it. And so in the light of this, there seems to be something we need to figure out about certain passages of Scripture. The psalmist says, in one place, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. There's a river. The prophet Ezekiel shares his vision of a river springing up within the temple, flowing outward in an increasing amount, bringing healing and life wherever it flows. But folks... There's no river in Jerusalem. What in the world are these scriptures referring to? Well, you see, in the scripture, very often, rivers, or abundant water, are symbols of prosperity, well-being, and most of all, the blessing and the presence of God. What it is saying is this. What water is to my physical life... God is to my soul. God is the source of my life. I need Him. I need Him all the time. And if I do not have Him, I dry up. The, the Psalms begin with these words. Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Where water is present, people flourish physically. Where God is present, people flourish spiritually. And so in the scripture, very often, rivers or water represent the life-giving, refreshing, satisfying, empowering presence of God among his people. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. And so rivers, rivers speak of renewal, of new life, of revival, of a fresh blessing of God upon an expectant people. Let's go back to verse 17, Isaiah 41, 17. It speaks to us. God's promise for His people today. The poor And needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Who are the poor and the needy? They've been around from way, way back. How about the people who were leaving Egypt... God had just released them and freed them from bondage and they're headed towards a promised land. But because of their lack of faith and dependence upon God, then they spend years and years wandering in the wilderness. They are poor and needy. How about the people of Isaiah's day? People who are in Jerusalem, in Judah. They are people who have been In the promised land, but again, they have ignored God, they have forgotten Him, they've got their own agendas, and now they are poor and needy. Who are the poor and needy? They were the people that Jesus spoke to when He he stood on that hillside and and shared the wonderful news about the the kingdom of God and what it would be like. And He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who are the poor in spirit? They were the coal miners that would come out of their mines in England in in the 1700s People who had miserable lives, desperate lives, no connection with God because their religious leaders had just completely failed them. And they would listen to a fellow by the name of John Wesley stand on a, on a little mount of dirt and preach to them about the incredible grace of God. Who are the poor and the needy? They're the people of upstate New York in the early 1800s. When a fellow by the name of Charles Finney began to preach about the goodness of God and the fullness of God and his blessing and a revival spread through this area that was just incredible. Who are the poor and the needy? They are the people of our time who are seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in entertainment, gadgets, drugs, A secular culture? Who are the people, the poor and the needy? They are the people, even sometimes within the church, who are longing for a fresh moving of God, and who realize that their lives are getting a little bit dry. They are the poor and the needy. So we can ask from time to time, it's good for us to ask, These questions. Are we completely satisfied with our spiritual lives? Do we sing sometimes the old songs, but they ring hollow? Can we say that we do not need a fresh outpouring from God these days? His Spirit, His blessing, His power, His joy, His love... Can we say that God is more real and precious right now than He's ever been before or not? Have we not allowed the spirit of this world sometimes, the spirit of fear or discouragement or criticism or division or self-sufficiency to rob us of the joy of salvation and a sense of mission? that God has given to each one of us. Who are the poor and the needy? They're all around us. We see families hurting. They need healing from God. We see people who need the Lord, and sometimes we're so wrapped up in our own lives that we feel powerless to help them. We see attitudes in ourselves sometimes that are so unlike the Spirit of Christ. We see the church sometimes as a shadow of what God intended for it to be. Forgetting that it is His church, not our church. It's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So this wonderful promise of rivers, of revo- revival, of refreshing, they're for all of us. Then, what is the promise? Verse 18 Isaiah says, I will, it uh, says from God, I will answer. I will not forsake. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. I will turn the desert into pools of water. Where there is spiritual coldness, I will bring fire. Where there is, there will, I will bring holy awe and mercy and grace and all of these things. Where there is hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness, I will bring healing. Where there's dryness, I'll bring rivers from God. I can personally remember times of God's renewal and blessing upon His church that transformed my life through the years. I can remember times when there was a sense of holy awe, mercy, And grace and joy lighted the faces of people who desperately needed forgiveness or mercy or grace or whatever. Joyce and I were transformed spiritually by one of those events. We had just moved to a small town in northern Maine where I got a job in the research department of a paper mill. And we walked into this strange church that we'd never heard of before. It's called the Church of the Nazarune, or something like that. The people loved us right in. We attended there for a couple of years. And through that period of time, we sensed an ever-growing awareness of the presence of God. And the desire of God to do something great among us. And then one Sunday night, it happened. In the middle of a service, suddenly everybody knew that God was there. And people fell to their knees. People prayed, people asked to be saved, believers asked to be filled with His Spirit. People who couldn't get along and couldn't speak to each other in the church were hugging each other and the tears were flowing down their faces. The service started at 7 o'clock and at midnight nobody wanted to leave because we were in the presence of a holy God. When I think back upon that, a couple of things come to my mind. The first is this. I believe that that night, God looked down upon that group of people in that church and saw that every single one of them wanted God more than anything else in all the world. The other thing I remember about that night is it was a transforming time for Joyce and me. We were, you know, Christians, we were believers, but that night everything changed, and we gave ourselves wholly to God, and it was because of that experience that I ultimately quit my job at the paper mill and went back to prepare for pastoral ministry. And although God never changes, He moves in an infinite variety of ways. He's not a boring God. He delights in touching His people in new and wonderful ways. He may not, never repeat that again, but He'll work in other ways among His people. I wonder what He wants to do in His church these days. Verse 19 I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia. In other words, where there was barrenness, I will produce a lush forest. Where there is spiritual poverty and dryness, I will bring an abundance of grace and power and joy. What a promise. I believe that God wants to do that very thing. What is it that releases these rivers from God? It's when we want God more than anything else in all the world. And we just give ourselves over to Him. Why does God make this promise of rivers, spiritual rivers, revival? Verse 20 tells us, so that people may see and know that the hand of the Lord has done this. God delights in the health and prosperity of His people that brings glory to Him. He is just absolutely delighted when He sees His people fulfilling His purposes for them. There's an old uh, book by a fellow named John Siemens. It's a book on the Spirit-filled life. It's called On Tiptoe with Joy. And in that book... John Siemens tells this little story. He says, Back years ago at Yosemite Park in California, there's this little thing that tradition that they would go through. During the day, the rangers would build this huge bonfire at the top of a cliff. And they would have that fire going through the day and building up this ever growing pile of glowing coals. And then as it was getting dark, a crowd would gather in the valley down below that cliff. And when it was about time and everyone was set, then the rangers up top would shout down to the crowd below and say, Hello down there in the camp. Are you ready? And the people, the campers and the people down there would look up and say, Yes, yes, we are ready. Is the fire ready? And the rangers would holler back down, the fire is ready. And then the people in the valley would say, then let the fire fall. And the rangers would push that massive pile of glowing coals over the edge of the cliff. And you would have this huge waterfall of flame and fire and coals that came down into the valley. When we look up to God with longing and hungry hearts, His voice pierces the stillness of our hearts. Beloved, are you ready? And our hearts beat with excitement as we call back and say, Yes, Lord, we're ready. Is the fire ready? And I think God chuckles just a little bit and says, Yeah, the fire's ready. It's been ready since the day of Pentecost. And with humble and expecting hearts, we cry out, then let the fire fall. And then God opens the windows and gates of heaven and pours his spirit upon us, sending his refining fire or his rivers of blessing, warming our cold and empty hearts. In early March, when this virus began, we were beginning to see what was happening there, I sent an email to my two grandsons, one in Chile and one up in uh, Canada at the military college. I said, hey, you guys, you, you, you both uh, kind of like history and stuff like that. And, uh, and you've studied in history about all kinds of historic events, like a couple of world wars, a Great Depression, the flu epidemic of 1918, uh, 9-11. You, you've seen some historic events. And I said, I believe you're going to see another one. You're going to live through it. Yourself. And since then, a pandemic has swept across the land and the world, bringing pain and loss and social chaos and economic and family disruption and no Red Sox baseball. (laughs) Wouldn't it be wonderful if a different kind of pandemic? would sweep across our land. A pandemic of love and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy and caring and joy. It could happen if the followers of Jesus would bow before a holy and loving God and say, yes, I'm ready. Let the fire fall. Let the rivers Flow. You see, this is Jesus' original plan for his followers. In the fullness of his spirit, we show to those around us, we spread the virus, we show those around us that they are loved by God. Not hated by God or us, but that they are loved by God. And we do it when our hearts are filled with his spirit. And our only motivation is to share the love of Jesus with people who don't know about it yet. What is the love of Jesus like? As as Jesus himself stood before an angry crowd who wanted to crucify him, he could have called down fire from heaven to destroy them. But instead, he chose to go to the cross to show that he loved them. God's people are most like Jesus when they are showing love, not anger. When they are yielding themselves to Christ rather than demanding their rights. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How will that happen? Jesus told us how. On one occasion, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he said before that, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, all people, show the love of Jesus to others. When we're filled with his spirit, we see others differently. We don't see their economic status. We don't see their racial origin. We don't see their political leanings. Instead, we see them with the eyes of Jesus. We hear them with the ears of Jesus. We love them with the heart of Jesus. And that's how we will change the world. Let's get this positive pandemic Going. Let's pray. Gracious God, we realize that we live in some very chaotic times. But Lord, there's been chaos in this world from the beginning. But you have called your people to be people who are going to cause the kingdom to come. And we do it not with anger, but we do it with love and compassion, a love and compassion that the world desperately needs. Help us to spread it like a virus to those around us and to those beyond. And Lord, may the rivers of revival flow in your church, we pray. Amen.